Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Carrie Figdor, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese. In our bi-monthly podcasts, we interview philosophers about their ideas as expressed in their newly published books. My interview today is with Crawford or Tim Elder, whose new book is Familiar Objects and Their Shadows, just published by Cambridge University Press. Professor Elder is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Connecticut. It might be a surprise to non-metaphysicians to discover the extent to which it is questionable whether the familiar objects we see and interact with exist, and yet these familiar objects are in fact very strange. For example, we tend to take for granted that the very same object can change all of its properties and all of its matter and yet somehow remain the same object. But how can that be? By analogy, if I swap all the ingredients in a recipe with a bunch of other ingredients and then change all the steps, would it make sense to say that I followed the recipe? But if it doesn't make sense, then what should we say about the nature of ordinary objects? As Tim Elder shows, the alternatives are many. These include the ontological relativist who denies that ordinary objects exist independently of human minds, and the explosivist, who readily agrees that there are ordinary objects, but who also thinks that there are many extraordinary objects, for example, trout turkeys, which start out as a trout and then at a later stage in life are turkeys. There is also the exturandist, who thinks objects are just chains of temporal stages, the way a ream of paper is nothing but a stack of sheets. The causal exclusionist, who thinks ordinary objects don't, in fact, satisfy our best criteria for existence, The composition skeptic, who says, for example, that there are no dogs, is just a bunch of atoms arranged dog-wise. And then finally, there's the universal myriologist, who thinks any parts compose a sum. The particles that make up your dog is one object, but the particles making up your dog and your bed and the Eiffel Tower are another object that is equally good. In his new book, Tim takes on these contemporary opponents of the view that ordinary objects exist much as we think they do, that they exist independently of us, and that they, along with the microparticles and other components that make them up, are pretty much all that does exist. In short, yes, Virginia, there really are dogs, but no, Virginia, you don't get the dogs for free. You have to fight for them. Let's turn to the interview. I have with me here Crawford Elder, usually known as Tim Elder, from the University of Connecticut. Uh, and we'll be talking about his new book, Familiar Objects and Their Shadows. Tim, are you there? I am here. Hi. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, before we get into your book, which is a very interesting tour of kind of contemporary analytic metaphysics insofar as it deals with problems of, of existence, um, Maybe you could say a word about how you got into philosophy and what topics have most interested you um, and how you came to write this particular book. Okay. I got into philosophy because of mistaken identity. I was 15. I was reading a book called uh, The Worldly Philosophers by Robert Heilbrunner. It was about Malthus and Ricardo and Marx and uh, political economy, the dismal science. And I went and visited, well, my father's uh, second wife and her kids, and they teased me mercilessly. I came home and my uh, complained of this to my mother, and she said, well, honey, if you want to read about philosophers, I'm sure it's entirely okay. And she bought me Russell's History of Western Philosophy, and that was it. I was hooked. So I was supposed to be a, a, an economist, Carrie, and it's by mistake that I'm in philosophy. Um. How, what am I interested in? Yeah. Uh, well, I've always been interested in metaphysics. I've always been interested in realism. I've always been interested in sort of anti-reductionist realism. Um, I had the, uh, how should we say, very ambitious idea when I was in graduate school that I would show to the world that Hegel was a realist, and he had a more interesting realist ontology than anybody else. Well, sir, that was a little bit overly uh, uh, ambitious. Um, And 
I don't know. I've just always been uh, very much interested in, kind of fascinated by. There's a love-hate relationship. Uh, various theses about language and thought that tempt you into anti-realist positions. Uh, because uh, after 40 years of being tortured by Kant, the one thing I know more clearly even than that I exist is that anti-realism doesn't work, that idealism doesn't work. But it's very hard to resist. So uh, uh, that's always been sort of my agenda. So this book kind of carries forward the yeah. defense of, of realism. And actually, I mean, it ends chapter 8. Um, you've got a concluding Hegelian postscript, right? Yes, I do. Uh, which which you've described as, in a sense, what the book is all about. So we will get there eventually and, and, and you know, somewhat surprisingly, you know, see what Hegel has to say about oh my. Uh, about analytic metaphysics. Right. But, uh, but let's, let's go in order then, um, at least partly in order. First of all, I guess the first question should be why are ordinary objects, and we can use... Uh, Dogs. Let's let's just use dogs as our paradigm example. Why are ordinary objects like dogs philosophically troubling, or troublesome for anybody? Uh, okay. Yes. Sure. They are. Uh, they are troublemakers. They're messy. Um, they undergo qualitative change. Now, at least this raises the tough question. How much qualitative change can a thing undergo and still be itself? And give me a realist answer. Don't just sort of stipulate uh, or go to our conventions, because that way you're going to turn persistence into an anti-realist phenomenon. Of course, some people think, never mind how much change, any change is bad. There is this so-called problem of temporary intrinsics. I'm not worried about that. But how much change... Uh, drives people crazy. It seems like any answer is kind of artificial and stipulated, but uh, if the uh, endpoints of a thing's career uh, are arbitrary and stipulated, uh, if its existence uh, doesn't have its own uh, beginning, a middle, and end, then the thing doesn't have its own reality. So you've got to be able to lick that problem. That's one problem. Uh, parts, dogs and other uh, composite objects, but especially, you picked a good uh, example, uh, living objects, are constantly losing parts and gaining parts. And everybody knows that that's very confusing. How much of that can go on and the things still exist? Obviously, some th people think this is just an, an intractable problem, and we should explain as much as we can uh, by just adverting to simples, to non-composite little guys. And that sort of is connected with the causal exclusionist agenda. Uh, this is another reason for hating dogs. You might think that anything that we say a dog does, like dig a hole in the ground or knock a fence down, that really, it's not the one dog involved in an episode of digging that brings about the uh, effect we're really reporting when we say there's a hole there. Uh, you might say it's many, many, well, simples um, involved in a very complex group event that bring about that result. Why would you prefer to award causal efficacy to many, many simples, or if they're physical simples, microparticles, rather than to a single familiar medium-sized object? Again, I think it's largely a uh, predilection for uh, neatness and uh, precision. The laws or generalizations that govern dog behavior are sloppy and shot through with exceptions. The laws that govern the behavior of electrons, uh, or even smaller, uh, more fundamental microparticles, seem pretty close to exceptionless. And people who like uh, sleek, neat, crisp entities, uh, for that reason, much prefer microparticles, many microparticles, to one dog. 
Actually, if we talk about that one again, I'll, I'll stick to baseballs and shattering windows. Oh, we will. <laughs> uh, and what else? What else? Well, I mean, if you are skeptical uh, about whether composition really occurs, and you might be if you can't come up with any analysis of what it amounts to, what, what, what is it for the many X's to compose a Y? If, if you can't figure that there's any answer to what it is, for them to do that, either you have a sort of surd brute fact on your hands, a composition is brute, which I don't blame Ned Marcosian for thinking, uh, or you say, well, there's no such phenomenon. Uh, there's no, there's not a dog. There's just many tiny microparticles there uh, that are dog-wise arranged, you know, tree-wise arrangedness, person-wise arrangedness, you know, the whole... Um, I can see why you'd want to say that. Uh, I think the whole composition literature has gotten off on the wrong foot, and uh, everyone who engages in it in uh, standard terms senses it'll never have a satisfactory outcome. So people want to trash composition. So I guess those are the main reasons for uh, not liking dogs. Uh, there's others that I don't explore in the book, and really, I wish I had. Vagueness. Ah. I gave a stab at vagueness in the 2004 book, but, you know, that's a topic for a book in its own right, and for somebody who's got more uh, clever ideas, so I left that out. Maybe that will be your next <laughs> next project because oh, no. uh behind me i've got other things to do right well the uh you know the theme of vagueness kept occurring to me as i as i was reading yeah um but so at some point it, it does have to be addressed right but in the meantime uh your position is just to sort of lay your cards on the table uh straightforward realist position about dogs and baseballs and things like that uh they exist uh, they exist independently of whatever we think about them. There you go. And they have the causal powers that we think they do. That's right. More or less. Okay. And you start the book with targeting uh, two what you call false friends of this realist. One is the uh, the so-called modal conventionalist. Yeah. Uh, and that person denies that these ordinary objects are mind-independent. They exist. They just don't exist independently of us. So I contend. They don't right. advertise that this is their position, but yes. Okay. Um, and then the second one is the person who you call the explosivist. Yes. Who agrees that the ordinary objects exist, exist and they do exist uh, independently of us, but also so, so do a lot of other bizarre things, like yeah, example right. the the trout turkeys. You know, something who starts out as some item that starts out as a trout, and then at some point it becomes a turkey. Although hopefully not at this time of year. Yes, yes, right. right. So let's let's start with the modal conventionalist. Sure. Um, how do you? Wh how do you respond to, well, what is their critique of of dogs or baseballs, whichever? I, I prefer dogs simply because they're, if there are natural kinds of things, they're an example of one. Whereas baseballs, one might argue, well, you know, that's an artifact. And so yeah. they do. We can also think of trees and cells and yeah. but, uh, uh, geodes and glaciers. Right. But um, You know, dogs are a little bad because of, well, I don't know if they're any better than trees, but there is this problem of whether uh, biological species are natural kinds. Yes. Well, that was okay. the question I was going to ask. But let's let's get to the modal conventionalist, right. um, the you know the person who says that well, what's out there really depends on us, and it's all it's all relative to us. We are the center it's, it's of the universe. Clever modal conventionalists frame their view, and uh, the main one I'm thinking of is Amy Thomason, who would not like my terminology. She says she's a modal conceptualist. Uh, these folks can admit uh, that it looks as if we learn empirically 
uh, which properties are essential to each of the metals, each of the animal species, uh, each, uh, well, maybe even each kind of food or each kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, phenomenon in the, in the lab. It looks as if we learn this empirically, as if the facts here are fixed by the world, and it's ours merely to record them. But the, the real view is, for each of these families of kinds, species, artifacts, foods, metals, we fix a kind of template, a kind of roster of the sorts of properties that will be essential to each kind within the domain. Those properties that we, we, we then we have to go out and look. We have to find out, oh, uh, atomic number? Well, for gold it's 79, for iron it's so-and-so. But why does atomic number amount to an essential property uh, that characterizes the kind? That's up to us. That's how we have chosen to taxonomize that domain. That's how we've chosen to individuate kinds. Uh, animals are uh, individual. Animal species are individuated by morphology and, uh, you know, uh, size when mature and uh, eating habits and so on. That's up to us. So, which sorts of properties are essential to each of the kinds in a given domain is a function of our conventions for individuating kinds. Same's true uh, concerning sameness of the other main sort. This individual persistence, the, sa the phenomenon of the same objects persisting across alterations. You can learn persistence conditions for the members of various kinds, but which sorts of properties can qualify as persistence conditions is going to be fixed by our conventions, our conventions for, for ruling same object still continuing to exist, uh, different object. So the picture here is this twofold one. Uh, the, the, the types of properties that are essential or that are persistence conditions, that's up to us, and then we... We fill in the types by doing empirical research. So there's a kind of judgment that we do all manage to wield, and that is which sorts of properties are going to be carried with, which sorts of properties are those objects going to carry with them across their entire existence? Which sorts of properties are those objects going to share with others in their kind? Somehow we manage these judgments. Uh, conventionalists say, well, they're just articulations of our conventions, and so, you see, we can't be wrong. Does now, that follow? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, actually it does. Uh, you see, there's no, there's no mind-independent phenomenon out there. Uh, I mean, there is once you've specified its atomic number or something, but that it's atomic number that individuates these kinds. That's, that's simply a function of how we divide things up. So it's not as if we could, uh, you know, ask the world, did we get it right? There's nothing uh, for us to get right. Our, uh, our template judgments about persistence and about kind membership can't be wrong because they're about how we think. Now, I don't know. I mean, geez, I don't know, Carrie. You could think uh, maybe inattentive people can... Uh, inaccurately articulate the conventions they're using. Is that what you mean? I mean, that, that could happen. But articulate people who are accurately uh, expressing, not reporting, expressing our conventions of individuation are bound to be right. Okay, so what I don't like about this view you can tell I don't like it because I just don't like anything that isn't realist. But what's my real argument? It doesn't explain why uh, judgments of kind sameness or judgments of numerical persistence across time have the utility that they do. 
really judgments of kind sameness are geared to causally underlaying clusterings of properties that are out there in the world. It happens that different sorts of properties cluster together in different sorts of domains, individual clusterings being characteristic of each kind within that domain. This clustering of properties is a world-given phenomenon. It has nothing to do with how we think or with our conventions. It is why it pays us to think in the ways we do. So I consider the conventionalists to have left out an important part of the explanation on why our kind sameness judgments, our numerical persistence judgments, pay off why they're useful. They have to be geared to something that's not up to us for that to be explainable. There. Okay. I know that sounds like I've drawn blood, but that's, that's, that is the basic story that I have, my basic beef against the conventionalists. So it, it sounds like if the, the realism explains the success... That's right. Now, look, I mean, so far as I'm concerned, officially in the book, you could talk about conventions of individuation. That's fine. I have no, I don't have, have no official beef with that. Just let's tell a story about why our conventions work, how they came to be there, uh, why we uh, maintain them. Um, don't just say that it's a bunch of undifferentiated stuff out there, which is what actual conventionalists do. That's no good. That's not going to explain, oh, well, not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. Conver oh, my goodness. Uh, I, maybe I'll even skip that. That's a whole other chapter. Shall I trash the explosivists now? Uh, I think so. Although I, I was going to, you know, sort of press for the conventionalists' side in a way. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, they might say something like, maybe it's not all chaos out there. That's fine. Uh, they, they don't have to say there's no differences out there. But they could still say, well, there's a dependence on what we perceive, what our cognitive capacities are, including perceptual capacities. And anything that kind of falls below our radar, our perceptual radar, it just doesn't get picked up. Okay. Well, uh, story on that. Um, first, where are we? I think we're in the world, too. So you have an us. Sounds like uh, you already have uh, a kind, a nature that's shared. Uh, you speak of cognitive capacities. These are exercised across time, and in fact, they mature. So you already have a phenomenon of persistence. Um, but look, the position is supposed to be that sameness in kind, numerical sameness across time, these are artifacts of conventions. So there, uh, you can't have convention-independent persistence or convention-independent sameness in kind. And it really is quite a puzzling situation. Uh, we're, we're somewhat in the position of transcendental egos. Uh, that is, we have a kind of, I mean, on the kind of story you're telling. Right. Or, or else you, you do a sort of, uh, uh, well, the kind of slogan that uh, Putnam used to like to give, uh, you say, we and the world jointly construct ourselves in the world, or we write uh, plays in which we're characters, but the characters are real. Um, that's not going to work either. So, and also, Carrie, by the way, even, even if I'll give you people with fixed cognitive capacities, which, by the way, for a materialist like me, means you've got brains, and so already there's some objects there, uh, it's going to be hard for you to make out this claim of certain small objects fall beneath our, our radar. Because then they, they've already got to have a size and shape. They've got to have a career. See, the, the picture here isn't that it's all great, uh, great tapioca. You're right about that. But it's that there aren't any edges out there. 
Um, there aren't endings and beginnings, uh, beginnings and endings of careers of individual things. Uh, there aren't edges to kinds. All that is up to us. What is there out there? Well, frankly, I mean, the, the answer is supposed to be a sort of play of properties. I don't think, I think there's a lot of properties you can't have until you already have edges, so I'm not sure they can make this out. But uh, it's pretty close to amorphous. It's not quite the picture of there being little things that uh, are too small to be noticed by our sensory apparatus. That's way too developed. That's got our us with sensory apparatus, you know. So that's that's what I say in response. Well, let me before we get on to the explosivist, which I which I do want to go to this bit about edges to the kinds, and I I guess I want to focus a bit on the kinds rather than the persistence of the individuals, at least for the moment. Sure. Uh, what, what do you think, which do you think are the natural kinds? Because there are different views of natural kinds, and some yeah. are more restrictive than others, and I, I have a feeling that yours is, is less restrictive than some. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, to a first approximation, the view would be uh, natural kinds are, uh, well, pluralities across certain, across which uh, properties of certain kinds uh, reliably cluster together, reliably because uh, because of some common recurrent causal ground. So um, th this would allow that um, uh, household screwdrivers and desks, perhaps, but certainly the screwdrivers, uh, compose a natural kind. So, yeah, this is pretty liberal. In fact, for people who want natural to, uh, you know, have, be the contrast term to uh, human dependent, I mean human created, uh, it's it's way too liberal. But I think that that old distinction between, uh, you know, nature and uh, cultural uh, is uh, the product of an antiquated way of thinking. Um, we're parts of nature, and what we make is parts uh, is part of nature. So, our uh, it would be mistaken to uh, have qualms about extending the label "natural kind" to uh, to artifacts. To artifacts. Well, let me let me press it from the other direction. Um, uh, Brian Ellis, for example, in, in defending the new essentialism, um, he has a very restrictive view of natural kinds, where it's pretty much just the natural kind, the, the kinds of physics, you know, electron, proton, yeah. those, and, and their, you know, quark, um, and then the kinds of chemistry, including molecules. Mm hmm. And these all count as kinds because they do have, they, they are categorical. They do have sharp cutoffs. And anything above that doesn't, yeah. including specifically biological kinds. Yeah. Um, you know, dogs. Uh, and the reason is, of course, he's got these strict, strict criteria. So his kinds are, are going to be very much smaller, or the, the things that he will allow to be natural kinds will be very much smaller. And here's the question. If what we pick out by the conventionalist to be the essential properties of a kind, right, depends on us, right? That's the conventionalist view. Yeah. On the other hand, what, you know, Ellis's is position is is well for a natural kind it has to be categorical and those are real he's a as, as realist and mind independent as you are about yeah and why that. does it have to be that because that's our convention for individuating kinds well no the, so, so I guess the question is how do you get to how, how do you stake out your middle ground yeah by I would claim this okay I would claim I stake out my middle ground by paying attention to the function played in our cognitive economy by uh, kind same or judgments of kind sameness. Now, one has to be a little careful here. Uh, 
the actual locution belongs to the same natural kind as is strictly philosopher ease. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I would be, you know, I wouldn't claim that the little chunk of philosopher ease uh, has any particular place in our conceptual economy. But I do think that uh, without using the words, uh, people commonly, well, look, you run inductions of a certain sort where, uh, you know, you see that this thing has, you know, three properties that you've noticed before and you infer that it's going to have four and five. Mm-hmm. Uh or let's say, you you know that it's that same kind of thing that you've examined before. So you know that whatever property it has of of type two, it, it will be there in all instances or all samples, which really supercharges your inductions. When you're starting to do things like that, when you're starting to uh, do this amplified observation of objects that are not present, uh, as I use the phrase, that's that's what kinds are for. And anywhere the world rewards that practice with an appropriate clustering together of properties, that's where there's a kind. That's the only way to anchor kindhood to the world rather than to our preferences and what we think. You know, if, see, I think Ellis really, he's going to be forced in the end into a conventionalist defense of what he's doing. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, but but it, but if it's just a matter of saying the only kinds that are that I care to recognize have, have precise edges, that is hard to really articulate except by going conventionalist. What what determines the thing is not what you think led to replication of kind talk, or what you wish led to replication of kind talk. What determines the thing is what has led to replication of kind talk, led to this sort of inductive practice. And this sort of inductive practice has flourished across all kinds of domains, way above the level of chemistry and the physical sciences. So if, if, it's, if it's going to be historically grounded, uh, not grounded in preference, aesthetics, or a philosophical judgment, then it's going to spread farther than than uh, this restrictive view allows. Besides that, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of other motives com- coming together uh, that would uh, inspire one to say that the kinds are the precisely defined kinds of uh, chemistry and physics. Uh, the idea that um, causation has to uh, instantiate exceptionalist laws, uh, the idea that uh, little things are, are better uh, than big things. Um, you know, I think a lot of the motives that are uh, that I mentioned before that lead people to not like dogs uh, lead them to prefer uh, this restrictive view of natural kinds. Well, let's go the other way with, with the explosivist. Sure. Right. Um, the explosivist is a, is another false friend in that they think there are dogs, but they also think there are dog computers and uh, yeah, exactly. all kinds of stuff. That's right. right. Suddenly switch to being a computer, and even you can suddenly switch to being a, a, a computer uh, way far away uh, with the consequence that you've apparently traveled faster than the speed of light. Yeah, well... Um, Okay, here, you see, okay, this is sort of the uh, mirror image of the mistake that the conventionalists make so far as I can understand things. The conventionalists know what we do with these judgments of kind sameness, and they know what we do with these judgments of uh, persistence. They just don't bother to ask themselves, gee, how come that works? It must be cued to something out in the world. The bookend mistake, the mirror image mistake, is to say there's a lot of stuff out there in the world and never mind what we might do with it. In other words, uh, there really is uh, a a kind out there that incorporates all and only the world's cars and the world's apples. Uh, 
Well, uh, you know, what do we do with that kind? Actually, of course, Hirsch has very clever answers, but on the face of it, a kind that incorporates all the world's cars and the world's apples looks pretty bad. Basically, the, uh, let's talk about individuative strangeness. This is where uh, the uh, stuff I don't like really comes out most clearly. Suppose you do think that, um, as Sider argues, uh, every assignment has a fusion. That is, any way of cross-cutting what we take to be the world's objects picks out a real object. So there really is something that right now is my left pinky, and in two seconds is the pen you're holding in your hand, and then a little while after that is a battleship in the Arabian Gulf, and then a little while after that is a donut. Um, you might think, whoa, uh, well, we sure don't have any use for tracking that persistence. Uh, nothing very interesting gets carried across. And the response that I find noteworthy uh, is that, well, of course the thing's really there. It's just that it's not very interesting to us. Right. It's ruled out on pragmatic grounds. And so there are, you know, the world's just chock full of weird things that we don't much care about, uh, mainly weird courses of persistence, but also some really weird kinds. Yeah, okay. So, um, what I say is this fails to notice that, um, well, look, basically, the, where I'm coming from is that semantic value is a function of what actually has led to replication of the item that has the uh, semantic value. Uh, this is Ruth Millikan. So that if we make certain kinds of judgments, uh, same thing still persisting. For example, uh, if we have vocabulary for uh, persistence and numerical sameness across time. There is a fact of the matter as to, well, it probably will be a fact of the matter as to what explains the replication of this kind of talk. And that is going to fix the semantic value of this kind of talk. So, you know, words like trout turkey or, well, I don't know, what word should we use for that strange object that I just uh, concocted? Um, you didn't concoct it. <laughs> precisely, well said, that I just traced. Uh, uh, hey, you said this wasn't going to be a hard interview. <laughs> uh um, when, if you're saying those things are perfectly real, uh, they're perfectly real instances of persistence, you're kind of forgetting that persistence talk has a proper function and that, you know, it has performed this because it's been geared to certain sorts of phenomena and not others. Well, let me, let me, again, uh, it's geared to the phenomena that we care about, or at least, or or maybe I'm putting that the, no, wrong, the wrong way around. Actually, yeah, um, no, no, you, you can make this. We, it's it's true that we don't care. We don't care all that much about the the battleship donut, or or the or yeah, whatever. It's the yeah. the dog computer battleship donut. Right. We don't. But so what? I mean, the whole point of the realist position or, or your realist position was that what's out there should not depend on us. And this sounds like... Yeah, yeah. It does. Okay, uh, point the first. Uh, it's not as if any of these folks would be wanting to claim, well, or very readily anyway, uh, that... Uh, there's sort of an anthropocentric bias against these objects, but that cleverer beings might care that they're there. Uh, nobody would care that they're there. There's just absolutely nothing to be learned uh, about them or from them. Uh, I mean, most most of the explosivists would be willing to concede this. Um, okay, let's that that's point the first and point the second. You got a world out there. You got us sitting here talking and thinking about it. I I do think. 
even a realist is entitled to say uh, our thought and our talk is done by us. The thinking is done in our heads and it has a history uh, in which we have figured. And uh, this could very well uh, have a lot to do with what our thought and talk is about. Uh, you don't have to say that the world is there for us, but you may have to say that our thought and talk is in us for for something it does for us. I think you'd want to say that. Um, and I think that's enough to show that, uh, yeah, that's enough to show that its semantic value has to do with things that are uh, cognitively or practically salient to us. Gee, I, I, I don't, it's a long story, Carrie. I don't, I really honestly don't believe that this is a sort of pragmatist view. I think it's uh, a non-mystified view of how thought interacts with the world. Let me talk about just one mystification, okay? okay. When I, I teach courses that deal with modality. Uh, I'm not talking, they're not modologic courses, they're sort of like the ontology, you know. And I get students who say, well, geez, how could we possibly, well, how could we possibly know about what properties things necessarily have, or why would we even care? Because the properties they necessarily have are those they carry with them across all possible worlds. The only world we ever observe or interact with is this world. So uh, what the heck? Uh, why do we care about necessity and contingency? And um, my response is that this, this way of looking at it just absolutely mystifies all the locutions by, like, by nature or, um, you know, by its very being. All the locutions by which for thousands of years we have uh, differentiated the necessary from the contingent, they're there for a reason. They've done something for us, and they've done something for us here in the real world. Um, and that's what you're talking about when you're talking about necessity. You're not talking about uh, you, what you're talking about maybe modelable by talking about other possible worlds, but you're not talking about other possible worlds. There's only one world. And, and so, um, so that's it. You, you can make a lot of these philosophical questions seem way too intractable. Well, let's, let's... By, by failing to see, you know, what breathes life into the terms that, that in which these philosophical issues are framed. So, well, speaking, I mean, since we, you've, you broached the topic of, of necessity, um, uh, let me just go to, maybe we can do, go to the question of the causal, what you call the causal exclusionists. Sure. Right? Sure. They are, those are the people who, first of all, connect existence with the ability to cause. Yep. Uh, which is a fairly widely accepted a position uh, with and, and, considerable sympathy which we can we can accept that um but there here the problem is as i understand it uh, you you go through the case in mental causation but it goes for dogs too oh, the the idea that can we use the baseball the baseball yeah sure thanks but the idea the idea is that um a baseball slams into a window, breaks the window, or so we would normally say, but the enemy of the baseball, right, the anti-realist, says, no, 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 it wasn't the baseball. There were lots of atoms there. Yep. And these atoms, collectively, yep. broke the window. So to the speak. The baseball did not break the window. It was all these little microparticles. Yes. All causation occurs at the micro level. So there aren't any baseballs because they don't have any real causal powers. You they got just, you know, it, what looks like a baseball 
is really just a cloud of particles and it's the particles that have the causal power and therefore they are the things that exist. Yes, you okay. said it well. That's that's the worry. So okay, so just what do you, what, little, do you, what do you say to that? Yeah. These guys aren't anti-realists, they're anti-familiarists. They they're, okay. they're, they're realists about the, the little microparticles. Okay, well, um I'll start it this way. This is a little hard to explain, so forgive me if this sounds a little canned, um, but I swear I'm not reading. Um, ordinary thought might think that, uh, yeah, it's the baseballs crashing violently against the window that causes the shattering of the window. One object figures in a certain uh, event or uh, acquires a certain property, and as a result, you have a window shattering. And you're right, the ex causal exclusionists say, uh, really what's happening is that many, many, many microparticles, by virtue of figuring in some complex group event, cause the event, the outcome, that we're really reporting when we say the window shattered. Of course, I mean, we're not going to even have windows by the time we're done, so we're going to have to paraphrase that away. Right. But whatever we report uh, by saying the window shattered, that's caused, okay. Well, here's what I say. I say, let's look at this complex group event in which many, many, many microparticles figure and be a little skeptical about its credentials to be a cause. First, I ask, how do you specify this event? And the answer is, by lavish iterations of the word and. It consists in that microparticles moving at such and such a velocity, and there being another microparticle so and so many nanometers away of type B, moving at such and such a velocity, and then, and then, a third microparticle passing from one energy state to another, and so on and so forth. Now, what I argue is that events of that stitched-together sort won't qualify as causes given the model of causation that we find in Jim Woodward and uh, uh, Chris uh, Hitchcock. The, the model that says that fundamental to causing is a relation called invariance. That's the idea that if you have, this is not supposed to be a reductive account of causation, just sort of a model of how it works. So if you have a putative cause and you have a putative effect, you should be able to ask yourself, well, what if things had been a little different with that cause? Would things have been a bit different with the effect? To use the metaphorical language, would intervening on the cause have enabled us to manipulate the effect? I, I subscribe to this view. I think that buried within the metaphorical language and doing some real work is the idea that departures from the actual cause or actual putative cause can be greater or less. We're asking about what if things have been different to this degree or to that degree. We're entertaining the idea of variance on V-A-R-I-N-T-S, mm -hmm. of variance on the actual cause event, um, to which we'd expect there to be some corresponding variation uh, in the effect. Uh, maybe it couldn't, the, there's going to be some function. It might not be linear. It might be really complicated. But, okay. And what I say is that this phenomenon, differing to differing degrees, differing more and less, is not defined over the kind of sprawling, stitched-together group event that my opponent wants to assign causal efficacy to. There's no clean metric of which other complex group events at the microparticle level would have been more different from the actual one or less different. Why is that? Yeah, okay, let me, I'll give you the, the tip of the answer. Uh, you, you're right, it's, it's completely invisible from anything I've said so far. 
What's your first inclination? If you think about this complex event, what would be one that's slightly different from it? Your first inclination is to think, well, let's keep all the microparticles the same and have them move at slightly different rates or have them pass into slightly different energy states. Natural way of thinking of it. But now ask, well, why do we have to keep the microparticles the same? What about those microparticles? Uh, makes them, uh, you know, central in the role, uh, definitory of which the alternative. Why not instead consider uh, complex group events that involve fewer microparticles or more, or microparticles located completely elsewhere? That seems counterintuitive, and I think I know the reason why. We're thinking that what unites all these microparticles to which we're assigning this efficacy is their joint occupancy of the volume in which a baseball is found. That won't do for the causal exclusionist, of course. It's going to turn out there are no baseballs, so there's no such thing as the volume uh, in which a baseball is found. So it can't be their joint occupancy of this volume that unites and singles out that particular roster of microparticles. Will that matter? Yeah, well, something... Look, Because baseballs, even on our view, right, they don't have sharp boundaries. Yeah, but uh, even if they had fuzzy ones, uh, it's the inclination to think, i got to keep more or less constant that it makes you think you know how to begin when you're answering the question, what if things have been a little different? If you stop projecting that shadow downward onto the level of the microparticles from the familiar objects, get rid of those, get rid of that shadow. Um, now you have to ask yourself, what's left? What's tying these microparticles together and making them the important ones? And the answer is, and. Well, could, can I... Can I? Uh, yeah. See, I always thought of and as a, a logical particle. Yeah. Well, uh, and I'm using the word particle, a, a logical operator. Right. Uh, and I would have thought that the connection between the physical particles will be some sort of energy state, you know, an orbital of some sort, or or some sort of nuclear or connection or. Something specified in physics, and okay, you're, we might call it and, but I mean, and is well, not no, no, what no. connects them. I was being slangy. Okay, this is short for we have a structural property here that's picked out by a predicate that has a lot of ands in it. I see. Uh, but yeah, is there something physical that unites the uh, microparticles that occupy the boundary of a typical familiar object like a baseball? No, I don't think so. Um, microparticles have got, are their local operators. Uh, they uh, have got a lot to do with their nearby neighbors, and those neighbors with others yet in turn, and those neighbors with others yet in turn. Um, there's, at the level of the microparticles, there's nothing particularly salient about the borders of a familiar object. Um, the ones on the border have lots of interactions with those beyond the border. Right. Uh, uh, but only a little ways beyond the border. It almost never happens that you have uh, transactions at the level of the microparticles that involve embroil all and only the microparticles within a familiar object. Um, there aren't border police at the edge of the uh, b- uh, baseball going around and saying right. to little quarks that are right next to them, you don't look like a baseball quark to me. Now, you show me some papers that are that are getting along fine with the guys behind them because those are baseball quarks. It's the same within and without uh, the boundaries of the familiar object. That's what I meant when I said that there's something andish about it. I just meant it's a, it's a sort of, once you throw away the shadows, you realize you've got an arbitrary collection, not much different from any old muriological sum. And then that means it becomes relevant to consider any alternative collection that is thus united. Now, if the, if the unification is just, as I was putting it, and, 
that's a very thin and watery unification. There's lots of other variant, alternative uh, events that we might consider. And that's about one-third of the way into the argument. The rest (laughs) of the argument says that once you realize how many variants count on the complex group event that my opponent favors, there's just there's many, many dimensions of variation, so many that they interfere with one another. And you move out on one dimension, you move out on another dimension, you might think you've defined a vector that's longer and longer, and it's, yeah, yeah there is a vector in this multidimensional space, but it doesn't measure distance. There's, uh, there's interference among the different uh, dimensions of, uh, of departure. And uh, for this, we'll both be happier if I just say, take it from me. Uh, it, it's it's, it's good, not going to be easy for me to persuade you or anybody who hears this podcast in a brief time uh, that this is so. But uh, the way I'm... I've, what I've read, uh, it, lots of people's... Okay, let's put it this way. I wrote this argument up, the Chapter 5 argument, sent it off, uh, got... Very generous, but very critical comments back from referees. And I was so dejected. And I thought, oh, well, of course, they're right. What a shame. I thought I had a good argument. There was some reply. And then I thought, well, there is a reply. My God, there is a reply. I just, I I was taking for granted certain assumptions that they were too, and I didn't realize it. Sent it out again. Same sort of objection. Same dejection. A week later, but there's an answer to that too. So if you don't initially trust what I'm saying here, I've been there, Carrie. I didn't trust it either. But uh, after a number of years, I uh, am now quite persuaded that uh, uh, the only way to make it look like you've got a causer down there Uh at the level of group events is to cheat and circumscribe the relevant alternative groups by the shadows cast by relevant alternative medium-sized objects. And we do this so inveterately, we don't even know what we're doing. But we are doing something that is cheating. Okay. Um, Well, we actually are... We've been going for close to an hour. Um, I'm not sure if... Maybe... No, I mean, listen. I I think... Well, I... um, We'll we'll have to end fairly soon, and I did want to get to the very last part about Hegel. So maybe, (laughs) which is sort of hard to, but since you felt that that's the core, in a sense it's the the heart of it, I I wanted to give you the opportunity to say something about about what, you know, how Hegel comes in here and and how you think it, 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 it's sort of the backdrop to sure. this entire sure. debate. Sure. Uh, I've just invoked him without saying his name. I've just said that causally efficacious properties have to differ to differing degrees from their own proper contraries. In fact, I use a stronger premise in a later chapter. Any property has to differ to differing degrees from its own proper contraries. By the time you get to chapter 8, I've been selling you a Hegelian line for a while. Chapter 8, I figured it was finally safe to uh, admit what I was thinking. Um, I mean, people are very distrustful of Hegel, and they think it's a way way of trying to take a sweeping view and sort of jump past the details. I thought it would be more persuasive and pleasing if I first dealt with individual uh, debates in the current scene and then said, well, actually, the whole thing is from a Hegelian point of view. Here's the point of view that uh, motivates it. I ask myself, why this antipathy towards familiar objects? Why suppose that their messiness is so objectionable? They do. uh, They do undergo all kinds of changes that don't seem to have readily delimitable uh, boundaries. Why is that bad? Hegel said that um, human thinking is 
dominated by two styles of thought, which using his language of those times, he called two faculties. Reason, that's the good one, I'm afraid. One is better than the other. Uh, reason is content to recognize what Hegel called identity indifference. That is, you got the same thing, but it's the same only by differing from itself. So this is like something that persists, but only by undergoing dip different episodes, or persists, but only by ejecting some parts and acquiring new parts. It's it's a similar idea, identity and difference, found in the account of properties that I just gave. That it's that property consists in its differing from those other properties, or at least partly consists in that. The very identity of a property is its contrasting and excluding certain other ones. It's natural to not like things like this and, and to uh, implement what Hegel thought of as another faculty, that is, the understanding. I think the understanding dominates contemporary metaphysics. It's a preference for things whose identity does not incorporate difference, whose identity is unvariegated and unfaceted, things that are this way only and not that. So we have entities that are so short-lived that it's impossible that they should under... I mean, it's, it's ruled out by the terms of the discussion that they should undergo qualitative change. Uh, these are the uh, stages of the exterrantist. Uh, we have entities that don't incorporate different parts, so we don't have to worry about how many parts they can acquire or lose. They are simples. Uh, we tend to prefer to award causation, causal efficacy, to lots of simples than to one big messy thing. Um, I think that similar motives are behind the belief in universal or unrestricted muriological composition. Uh, there's nothing to a big thing beyond that the little components exist. So you don't have to have an account of when the big thing ceases to exist or what it is for it to continue to exist. We have, well, arguably, the muriological essentialism, brittle big things. So I think that um, well, and there's a whole thing I didn't say about the treatment of modality as um, not different ways a given thing can be, but different things that are counterparts in other possible worlds. Uh, I, I take Lewis's modal views to be another articulation of the understanding. And I, so it, this is, it's not bad. The understanding is not bad, but it shouldn't have a stranglehold over our thought. It shouldn't be that people who want to believe in things whose identity admits difference have to feel apologetic or ashamed. That's the basic Hegelian message there. Well, that's, that is quite a message. Um, will your next project be more forthrightly Hegelian? No. Uh, a friend of mine encouraged me to be forthrightly Hegelian, say it in the very start of the book. I am doing a Hegelian indictment of contemporary metaphysics. You know how that would sound. Um, I don't know. It, it, might, it, so it would sound like the, the author saying, uh, I'm an antiquarian who probably needs uh, 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 psychological counseling. Uh, it, it doesn't inspire I'm, I'm afraid. Maybe things have gotten better from when I was a young man uh, doing a short book on the logic, but I'm afraid it may not have gotten better. Anyway, Carrie, uh, no, I don't think I'm going to try that because I don't any longer, uh, I don't have the, the faith. I, I like the first third of the logic and about halfway through the second third, the doctrine of uh, essence, but I think that the rest is wishful thinking. Uh, no, uh, I uh, I just decided to start thinking about something that I had never really understood very well, and that's uh, debates in philosophy of time. Uh -huh. And uh, the first thing that happened was I threw off this uh, presentism, which I had learned from my great Hegelian teacher, uh, J.N. Findlay, uh, 
well, I don't know how Hegelian it was, but he was a presentist, and he inspired uh, Arthur Pryor to go out and develop tense logic. And it had been like a family religion. Uh, you, you have to be a presentist. Well, didn't take me long to decide that was just wrong, and I'm an eternalist now. And it's kind of exciting um, having all these forbidden thoughts and trying to face uh, the same problems, but from uh, a standpoint I hardly recognize. Where this will go, I have no idea, but uh, that's what I'm working on now. Well, that's part of the, the fun of being a philosopher, of course. It is. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for a, a wonderful conversation. Um, we've been talking with uh, Tim Elder uh, uh, about his book, Familiar Objects and Their Shadows. Uh, thank you, Professor Elder. Absolutely. And, what a good interview you give. Uh, well, um, and hopefully we'll be reading something about time uh, in the near future. <laughs> well said. Okay. okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We've been talking with Tim Elder about his new book, Familiar Objects and Their Shadows, just out from Cambridge University Press. Professor Elder is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Connecticut. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, and thank you for listening.